In verses 1 through 4, we talked a little bit about the who, the what, the why, the where, the when of the book of Hebrews. We know it was written in the early 60s AD, so a little more than 30 years after Christ's crucifixion and a handful of years before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And it was written to a Jewish audience who had left the old ways of Judaism for the teachings of Christ. And it was written to remind them who Jesus is and to warn them not to turn their backs on him. The author says Jesus is better. That's the theme of the book. Don't go back to the old Jewish practices. That's what he really is trying to impress upon them. Don't go back to the old Jewish practices. I know the temple's still there. They're still doing the whole sacrifice and rituals thing. And I know that seems like a credible option for you and one that's accepted somewhat still by uh, the, the state of Rome. And so you could avoid persecution by going back in and doing that. But there's nothing there for you. There's nothing there for you. It is to no avail. All of that stuff over there points to this. This Jesus that they're now considering leaving. Okay? Don't do it, he says. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. How is he better? Why is he better? Well, that's the whole book of Hebrews. Okay? It's, it's Christ enlarged to show detail. And it really is a delight to read and to study, especially if you're feeling particularly tired and, and worn out in your own faith. You know, it's, it's unmistakable. You can't miss that the author is just, just so blown away by Jesus. He's amazed. He is genuinely, genuinely impressed by Jesus. You know, have, you, have you met people like that? Have you, have you met people just so impressed by Jesus? They're just like sillied up with Jesus, right? And you might think sometimes, you know, I used to be like that. I used to be like that. I used to be on fire for Jesus. Why used to be? Yeah? Why used to be? Probably because like the people this was written to, we're always tempted to go back to our old familiar ways. You know, and your old familiar ways aren't their old familiar ways. You're not particularly interested in, in the Jewish rituals and sacrifices and that sort of thing, but we all have our old ways. And so there's something we're tempted to believe uh, is a something better, right? Something easier. And so we're tempted to give up, not give up on the faith entirely, okay? not just to completely turn our backs on everything we've ever been taught and to denounce the faith entirely, but sometimes in the life of a Christian, there's a sense of weariness and exhaustion. You know, you think, I, I thought this Jesus thing, this Christian life was supposed to be better than this. It feels hard. It feels like hard work. It feels uh, confusing at times, and people don't like it. People don't like me because of it. Yeah, that's, that's what they were, that's very much what they were going through, okay? There's nothing new under the sun. That, that's very much what these people were going through, thinking maybe I should just, you know, maybe cool my heels a bit, put the brakes on this thing just a little, and maybe there is something better after all, and instead of thinking about Jesus, you start thinking about that something better, right? 
Instead of him occupying your mind, what occupies your mind is thinking about what else is out there, what might be better. And that generally happens uh, when we begin following Jesus out of a sense of duty or obligation and rather than a delight and being utterly amazed by who and what he is. You feel like, I'm, you know, I'm supposed to be doing this thing over here. I know I'm supposed to be doing this thing over here, but this sure looks easier. And you look at people around you, you know, you look at people around you and the way that they live their lives, and you think, well, they're, they're not a Christian, and they have better relationships than I do. You know, they've got more friends. They, they have a better marriage. They, you know, they're, they're not believers, and they seem to uh, have more success than I do. They've got more money. Their prospects are better. They, they have uh, more advantages. They have more fun, more free time, more vacations, whatever it is. But Hebrews reminds us, no. Jesus actually is better. We just have to be reminded how and why. So again, the book of Hebrews gives us reminders and it gives us warnings, reminders of how unimaginably glorious Christ is and the riches that belong to those who believe in him and warnings about continuing in the faith. This is where the warnings come in. We'll get more into that next week, okay? but warnings about continuing to walk in faith and obedience to him because of how amazing he is. You know, last time we talked in verses one through four, just a quick refresher since, you know, we had kind of a gap week. We had a guest preacher last week. Um, We looked in verses one through four that God spoke, right? He spoke at many times and in many ways, but mainly through his prophets. When he wanted to speak to his people, he spoke through his mouthpieces, right? You think of some of these prophets, uh, you know, Moses, Samuel, Isaiah, Elijah and Elisha, uh, Ezekiel, Daniel, so on and so forth. Men who spoke for God, chosen by the Holy Spirit who spoke for God. That's a big deal. These prophets were a big deal. They knew they were a big deal, but what he wanted to show us there, Christ being the superior revelation of God, he's a way bigger deal than even these, these hotshot prophets they all know about. He says in verse 2, in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. So he's already proven Christ is the, the crescendo of God speaking. God used to speak through his prophets, through his intermediaries, through his representatives, but what if God showed up and spoke for himself. Wouldn't that impress you? Well, he did. He did. That's what the author reminds them of. God took on flesh and came and spoke for himself. God used to only speak to us through prophets, but now God himself has shown up and spoken to us. And all that, as amazing as that is, that's only the opening. That's just the first four verses of the book of Hebrews, and we're already there. The author demonstrates Jesus is better than the prophets. He goes on that he's better than angels. We'll talk about that this morning, that he's better than Moses, that he's, he's better than the sacrifices they offered. He's, he's better than Aaron, the great high priest. He's, he offers a, a better covenant in his blood. He's better than anyone in anything. And that's what we need. That's what we need today as 21st century Christians sitting here in Irmo right now at King's Church in these pews. We need that. We need those reminders that help us fall in love with Christ all over again, if you want to think of it that way. You know, that's, 
That's not an inappropriate way to, to think of it, but it does get overplayed a little bit, right? And, and loses its punch. What we really mean, what, what these reminders really do for us and what we really mean by falling in love with Christ all over again is that these reminders fix our eyes back on Jesus who is so much bigger than we often care to even imagine. We need these reminders. We're reminded of how awesome he truly is. And the most classical meaning of the word, awesome, he is awesome, full of awe. When we see him from every angle, he just becomes too much for us to take in. And we're so swept away by his grace and overwhelmed with a sense of love and gratitude, we fall in love with Christ all over again. That's what Hebrews helps us do. It, it examines Jesus from all sides like a diamond, picks up on all the little intricacies and the refractions. It's, it's just Jesus enlarged to show detail. He's so much bigger than just a savior. Does that sound strange? I mean, that's pretty huge, isn't it? Jesus is a savior. He came to die for the sins of his people. That's huge. But it's not big enough. If that's as big as Jesus is to you, you will miss so much that the author of Hebrews does not want you to miss. You know, if that's the only, if that's the only sort of conception of, of who Jesus, the eternal Son of God, is in your mind, that he is Redeemer, that's not wrong. He is that. But it's just incomplete. It's an incomplete view of Jesus. The author wants us to know Jesus is the Christ. He is the prophet, the priest, the king. He came to reveal the word and the will of God to us. He is the prophet. He came to offer himself a perfect sacrifice for sin. He is the priest. And he came to be our ultimate just and righteous ruler. He is the king. We see he is the heir of all things in verse 2. All the language used in the Old Testament to describe God, all of his attributes are ascribed to Jesus. He is the creator of all things. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. So he not only created everything, he sustains and governs everything he has created. So he's king of the world. That's who this Jesus is. Savior, yes. Okay? That's important to us, and it's personal to us, because we know we can't be reconciled to God apart from his sacrifice for our sin and his perfect obedience to the Father imputed to us by faith. That's personal. That's important to us. But he's not just that. That's what the author of Hebrews wants them to see. So we covered, again, we covered all of this in verses 1 through 4. This is really just a refresher, all right? Now we're coming in beginning at verse 5, 5 through 14. We'll actually take a half step back into, into verse 4 first just to kind of shift gears. But what he does in these next several verses is really, really awesome. He wants them to be impressed by Jesus. Some for the first time, okay? But mostly, he wants those who are drifting, those who are feeling kind of weary and exhausted, a little worn out in their faith, he wants them to have their doors blown off by how impressive Jesus really is. So let's see how he does it. Hebrews chapter 1, 
beginning at verse 4. Now hear the words of the one true and living God. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning of the heavens or the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? <clears throat> We'll start here. What impresses you? It's like I asked the children a moment ago. Think for a second. What impresses you? People? Are you impressed by what some people have the ability to do? Right? Like feats of strength, um, athletic performance. Yeah, our, our boys just finished their baseball season yesterday. They've been playing a lot of baseball, and I guess I've searched enough on my phone for things related to baseball so I can help them that, uh, you know, Facebook has done me the favor of, like, serving me up Major League Baseball clips and stuff. And uh, I saw this one clip where this guy, somebody hits the ball into deep right field. I mean, to the back corner of, of the field. And this guy picks up this ball, and he throws it all the way to the third baseman's glove and gets the runner out. Okay, I'm not talking about like on a bounce or hit the middle man. I'm talking about threw it from the farthest corner of the field to the third baseman's glove. And the first thing I thought was, wow, that's impressive. Yeah, because I know I couldn't do that. I don't think 99.9% .9 of grown men could do that. That's why that guy makes more money than 99.9% .9 of grown men alive, right? But, you know, we're impressed with people. We get impressed with people sometimes, things that people can do well that we know we can't do well, whether it's like singing or dancing or playing an instrument. Everyone likes being impressed. We can agree on that, right? Everyone... Everyone likes to be impressed, even if you're hard to impress. You might be one of those types. You know, that might be you. You're, you're a little bit harder to impress. And what's funny, in a, in a couple, you'll find there's usually the one that's more easily impressed. You know who you are. There's one that's harder to impress and one that's easier to impress. I'm the easier to impress. There'll be things, I like to laugh. It doesn't take much for me to laugh. 
And so there'll be things that I think are funny. Amanda just kind of rolls her eyes at me. So she might be the more difficult one to impress, and that's okay, right? Um, but whether you're the one who is too easily impressed or you're hard to impress, we all like to be impressed. And the author of Hebrews says, I've got someone you need to meet. At this time that this was written, and in their minds, the thing most impressive to them, what would impress them most, is angels. Being visited by an angel, that would really get their attention. You know, you think about that for a second, that'd get our attention too, sure, wouldn't it? I mean, we believe in angels, there's such a thing. We'd be pretty surprised if we met one. We'd probably be pretty floored if we did. But to them, this is much more top of mind, okay? This is something that's a little bit more on their radar because this is something that, that's happened recently and locally. You know, this is, this is a possibility for them. That's out there. This could, this could be a thing. And they can't conceive of anything more amazing than that, being visited by an angel. And they had a better idea of what angels were, by the way, than we probably do with sort of our over-cinematized uh, versions of these things. You know, they're not cute little chubby babies with wings or some kindly old gentleman that comes to help you through your little life difficulty, you know. Uh, they're, they're terrifying creatures, awe-inspiring. Every time an angel shows up and appears to someone in the Bible, what's the first thing they say? Yeah, right? They come bringing an important message from God, but what do they have to always say before that? Don't be afraid. And why do they do that? Because whoever they just appeared to is freaking out. I'd imagine God was just gracious and kind enough to maybe spare some, some details, spare some embarrassment for those characters in the Bible of like perhaps wetting themselves even. I mean, that, let's not put that off the table. That, that probably happened, okay? Absolutely floored, terrified, awestruck in the presence of these, these angels. And they always start off the same way, right? Get up. It's okay. I'm not going to kill you. I just have to tell you something. Angels are seriously impressive, and their presence overwhelmed anyone they ever encountered. Here's the point. If you have encountered Jesus, you should be all the more overwhelmed. That's the point the author's making in these verses. He starts unfolding how much more magnificent, how much more awesome and awe-inspiring Jesus is than even the angels who are the most impressive thing they can imagine. The author gives seven Old Testament passages about Jesus being superior to angels. And again, that's the number of completion. We saw that, we saw him do it before when he was demonstrating how Jesus uh, is the superior revelation of God, that he's superior to the prophets. Uh, he's doing it again here. Okay? giving seven Old Testament passages to underscore how Jesus is superior to angels. And he's highlighting four key attributes of Jesus that belong to God. Okay? So those will be your points. I'll, I'll roll them out one by one, those four key attributes. The first one is this. He has a better name than angels. So here's where we take a little half step back again into verse 4. He says, superior to angels is the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And how is that? He's, he's the heir. 
He is the Son of God. Verse 5, his name is above all other names. And here's where he uses two of those proof texts from the Old Testament in verse 5. Psalm 2-7 and 2 Samuel 7-14. He says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's Psalm 2-7. He says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. 2 Samuel 7-14. To which of the angels has he ever said that? We'll pause right here for a second. Sometimes when we come to some of these like uh, p- potential stumpers in the Bible, I want to be careful to pause, sideline for just a minute, and, and, and to look at that and examine it. Because I don't know about you, but early on in my Christian walk, I really struggled with how Jesus could be God and begotten. That begotten thing tripped me up. It's not that I didn't believe it. It's just I needed to kind of wrap my mind around that a little bit. It sounds like there was a time when Jesus wasn't a son, and then he is a son. You know, it says, today I have begotten you. Well, what about yesterday, right? Our family recently went through the uh, Athanasian Creed during our morning devotion time uh, with the kids, and it really hammers home the point of the Trinity. It does an excellent job of that, that God is uh, one being in three distinct persons, and that these three persons, they're all eternal. They are all co-equal and power and glory. But it says, the Son is begotten of the Father, and the Spirit is not begotten, but proceeds from the Father and the Son. So what is meant by begotten? How are you begotten but not made? How are you eternal if you're begotten? When did Jesus become the Son of God? These are all very good questions. We don't have to be ashamed of asking them. Scripture makes it clear to us. We know Jesus is God. We know he is eternal. But we read something like this and it sounds like he wasn't. Like there was a a, a time when maybe he came out of the Father. Is that what begotten means? That he wasn't a son and became a son. What we need to be able to understand is this is is an eternal kind of begotten. This is something that would have made a lot more sense in the Roman mind. Okay? You know, we take some of these sort of antiquated words and we try to uh, uh, flesh them out for ourselves and then we get stumped. But this would have made perfect sense then at the time this was written. A son would, despite having always been a son, would have uh, come of age and taken on the family name and role in the family in a more formal capacity, okay? He'd always been a son, never lacking anything, but at some point was especially exalted as a son. So Jesus has always been the eternally begotten son of God, every bit as powerful as he ever was. But there was a point in time when he was especially exalted by the Father and came into a full and formal bestowing of sonship, and that was at his resurrection, okay? His kingdom was inaugurated at the incarnation, all right? And then when he rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven to the right hand of Father, right? He, having conquered sin and and Satan and death, he takes on sort of this this, this role in a new light. And if you look at the psalm there that he's referring to, you can see that. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And the point is this, okay? That's coming off of our little detour there, talking about the begotten thing, coming back on the main road here. The point is this. This is what the author wants you to understand. 
No angel has that status. Jesus is not just some created being. He is not an angel. He's the eternal son of God. So much grander, so much greater, so much more powerful. And we'll see more of that uh, in these next couple of verses. What can be said of Jesus can't be said of any of the angels. He's more impressive than angels. So much more impressive, in fact, that angels worshiped him. So that's the second point, the second attribute. The next thing that we're looking at, verse 6. The next attribute Jesus of Jesus that makes him more superior to angels is that he is worshipped by the angels. Let all God's angels worship him, it says there. You know, Jesus received worship, didn't he? You know, when he was on the earth, didn't people worship him? The proof of divinity in, in the Jewish mind, okay, the, the proof of divinity is creator on the one hand, sort of twofold. One is creator. That's a God thing. The other is receiving worship. That's, that's only a God thing. Both have already been ascribed to Jesus in six verses. You see this? Both, the, the, the big ones, the two things, the proofs that your God have already been given to Jesus in six verses in the book of Hebrews. Angels didn't create, but Jesus did. Angels didn't receive worship, but Jesus did. He received worship. When people fell down and worshiped him, he didn't correct them like the angels did. The angels would be like, no, no, don't do that. Jesus received worship. And remember, people would fall on their faces before those angels. Uh, they, they would fear them. Their sort of gut reaction, their just in, in, uh, instinctive reaction was to worship them because they were just never seen anything like them. I mean, what else would you do? So everyone knows people are mesmerized by angels, but what the author's trying to point to here is he wants them to realize how mesmerized the angels are by Jesus. Take, take that reaction that humans have. Like we can kind of put ourselves in those shoes for a second, okay? You take that reaction that you imagine humans would have, being visited by an angel, overwhelmed by that, multiply that times infinity, and then you start to get a little sense of how the angels are in the presence of Jesus. You think about that picture Isaiah gives in chapter 6 of Isaiah, uh, of the seraphim in the throne room in this vision, right? And seraphim, by the way, I don't know if you know this or not, had six wings, and their name literally translates burning ones. So yeah, Pretty terrifying. But what are they doing in Isaiah chapter 6? It says, with two wings they covered their face, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. So two-thirds of their wings are used to cover themselves in the presence of God. Because the glory of God was too much for them to take in. Now, if we, if we were to turn there, you don't need to, but if you look at John chapter 12, verse 41, it's made clear to us, Jesus is who Isaiah was talking about there. That overwhelming, shining one that the angels, the terrifying, burning ones with six wings couldn't bear the sight of and cried out night and day, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That's Jesus. 
That's how impressive he is. And you know, that's why, that's why worship is so important. That's, that's why coming to church like we're here this morning, gathering the saints on the Lord's Day every Sunday is so critical. Six days a week, we, we do what we do, right? We make money, we, uh, we work at our jobs, we set goals, we, we set out to accomplish them, we, we, uh, we, we make homes, we make lives, we care for children and raise them. And all of that is good and God-glorifying. But then, bam, Sunday hits. And we encounter and are confronted with the God who made us, and we're impressed by him. We come to worship him. We're reminded of Christ's worthiness and worship him. What else could we possibly do but fall down on our knees and worship him? The next attribute, third attribute, he rules over these angels they're so impressed with, verses 8 and 9. There's a contrast from uh, verse 7 to verse 8, okay? It says, of the angels, he says, verse 7, but of the Son, he says, verse 8. He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The author's uh, pulling this language from Psalm 45 here in this instance. Remember, he's pulling seven Old Testament verses to demonstrate this point, that number of completion again, to drive home the point that Jesus is greater than the angels. And here he uses throne language to do it. And anytime you see that in Scripture, that throne language, that's, that's kingship, right? Speaking to, of the Son, he says, your throne, O God. Again, there's no, no question. Jesus is God. And I'll, I'll tell you, if you ever want to prove the divinity of Jesus to someone in the Bible, this is an excellent place to do it. You ever talk with anybody that says Jesus isn't God or that he was just created like one of the angels? Uh, take him to Hebrews 1. This is a great place to take Jehovah's Witnesses, by the way. You know, if you ever run into them, they happen to knock on your door, you run out, you run into them. You, you, you're armed with the, the truth of God's word. Like, you have what you need. You don't have to be some scholar to, to be able to point to God's word and show them uh, authoritatively what, what God's word says and how it differs from uh, what they believe. They, what they'll do, they'll change some stuff in their translation. It's called the New World Translation. Don't ever pick that up and be like, oh, here's a new one. No, it's not. Don't, that, don't go there. It is not the same thing. They have, they have changed things there to fit their theology, right? Um, for example, John 1 in your Bible would say that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Theirs says in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, okay? They didn't get that from the Greek. They got it from their... their already sort of preconceived notions and, and twisted the word to fit what they believe. Another example, uh, in Colossians 1, your Bible says that Christ created all things. Uh, by him, all things were created. That's what it says. By him, all things were created. Theirs would say, by him, all other things were created. Okay? 
because they, they, need, they need to reinforce this idea that he is a created being. Sure, he created the other stuff, but he too was, was a creation by Jehovah God. So the, the, the reason I, I mention that is because they missed a spot. <laughs> they missed a spot here in Hebrews. You take them to the Old Testament where the author of Hebrews is quoting from in these verses, and you say, who is this talking about? And in their translation, you let them read it in their own Bible, right? It'll read the same as yours, and they'll say, Jehovah God. And you'll say, I agree. Yeah, amen. Then you take them to Hebrews 1, where the author's picking up that same language and ascribing all of that to Jesus. And you say, who is this talking about? And they'll have to say, Jehovah God. And you say, You know, you, you, you can't get around that. So it's a wonderful place to bring people to show them the divinity of, of Jesus. Another verse the author uses here to prove Jesus is superior to the angels is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament, Psalm 110. Look at verse 13. It says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Jesus is not just in a, a, a position of, of some power and authority. He's not just king. He is a divine warrior king. A divine warrior king who will destroy all of his enemies. He will vanquish all his foes. Get this for a minute. Is Jesus a friend to sinners? Yes, I see a few confident heads nodding. You know, it felt like a trick question. I know. Yeah, we, Jesus is a friend to sinners. This is your friend, this divine warrior king that we've just talked about, that we've just described. This is your friend. If you have trusted in him alone for salvation. Now, the reverse is true. If you have not, this is your foe. He is not to be mocked. He is not to be disobeyed. You don't want to rebel against this Jesus. People need to understand who it is that they're messing with. This is why it's important to recognize Jesus is not just someone who, who, who places like a take-it-or-leave-it offer on the table uh, for forgiveness, and, and, and you just have sort of the right of refusal. The gospel is not a suggestion. It is a command. Repent and believe. The Jesus we read about in the Bible is not someone you just ask into your heart and then he's obligated to come. Like he's just, he's just knocking on the door of your heart, desperately hoping you'll answer, uh, hopeless to save you unless you let him. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. But that is how many people generally think of Jesus. Like he's just waving around some free concert tickets, you know? Who wants them? And if you got something better going on, you'd be like, ah, I'll pass, you know? Somebody else could use those more than me. No. That is not the gospel. No, he is reconciling all things to himself, and he does that two ways. 
Peace with God through repentance and faith. That's option one. Peace with God through repentance and faith. And the other way he's reconciling all things to himself is bringing the wrath of God and righteous judgment that crushes all of his enemies. There's the options. Okay, so it's, it's not heaven or no heaven. Okay? It's heaven or hell. It's not forgiveness or no forgiveness. It's forgiveness or punishment. It's not eternal life or no eternal life. It's eternal life or eternal death. Those are the options. Friends, this morning, ask yourself, am I on the Lord's side? Are you? Do you really want to be against this king? Hearing all this, is Jesus your friend or your foe? It's an important question to ask. It's a question the author of Hebrews begs these people to answer for themselves. Believers, ask of yourself, is this Jesus someone uh, I want to waste a second thinking about wandering away from? Is this a Jesus I can afford to be secondary in my life? Be more impressed with Jesus. The angels are. The angels serve him, it says, verse 14. They're all ministering spirits serving Jesus. So they're not served by Jesus. Jesus is served by them. They exist to do his bidding. So do we. So do we. There's more, right? Stay tuned. There's more. Uh, next week we'll get into some of that. It's fascinating. We are made to do his bidding. Only we, as adopted sons and daughters, little teaser here, will rule over the angels with him. And share in his inheritance. This inheritance the Father promises to the Son. We have a part in that. Because of the love with which the Father loved us and the price that Christ the Son paid for us, Make my hair stand up. Are we impressed yet? More terrified, in a good way I mean, more terrified of Jesus than of angels, more inclined to bow before this king who rules heaven and earth, that even the angels obey? Last point, last attribute, and I'll keep, I'll keep it short. It's the fourth one. This Jesus that he's demonstrating is greater than the angels. Boy, it has to be. He made the angels. He's the one who made them, verses 10 through 12. He is the one who laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens themselves are the work of his hands, verse 10. The heavens themselves and all that is in them, including the angels. In verses 10 through 12, the author cites three different psalms. You can... You can mark these down in your Bible if you want to. If, you have, if your Bible already sort of references these things, that's, that's terrific. But, you know, again, uh, showing these parallels, great way to 
connect the dots with the divinity of Jesus. But the Psalms that he's uh, citing here, Psalm 104, verse 4, uh, Psalm 45, 6 through 7, Psalm 102, 25 through 27. Jesus created everything, including the angels, even the glorious, powerful, otherworldly, impressive angels. Got to save something for next week. Encountering an angel would really be something, wouldn't it? I mean, imagine that to some extent. That would really be something. That would be incredible. That would be quite the experience. I'm not sure uh, we'd have another experience in this life that would be quite like that. What about encountering Jesus? What about God taking on flesh to die in your place and reconciling you to himself and indwelling you by the Holy Spirit so that no matter what happens in this world or in this life, not even death will hold you down? How about that? How about the fact that in light of the fact that the light of the world has come, we live in these last days. Remember we talked about that last week? We said it's not about how many days are left. It's about what kind of days they are. Realizing how privileged we are to live in the time that we're in. As strange as that sounds, I know it sounds strange, but how privileged we are to live in the days that we live. We live in a time, y'all, when Jesus has come. He has made a once and for all sacrifice for sin. He has risen, he has ascended, and he's making peace by the blood of his cross. The gospel is going forth and he is reconciling all things to himself. As dark as you think the world looks, as bad as you think things are, it's all his. He is in control. Now, we're not waiting on him to be in control later. He is in control now. He is bringing righteousness and justice and peace because he is on his throne and it is his right. That's who he is. That's what he came to do, and he will do it. The Lord of the hosts, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Is there anything more impressive than that? Go back through that list again. The people, the feats of strength, the athletic performance, the places you've seen, the imaginations that you have. Is there anything more impressive than that? Anyone more impressive than that? Any news greater? Our view of Jesus gets a little bit bigger, a little grander in the book of Hebrews. We're reminded to not settle for less. Here's what's fun, y'all. You don't have to settle for less, and you shouldn't. You shouldn't aim lower. We have Jesus. He is better. We get this bigger picture of Jesus, and we're not so easily impressed with the things of the world, but with the one who made all the things. 
Whatever it is, we're tempted to be more impressed with it pales in comparison to the glory of Christ our King. He alone is worthy of our worship. And our hearts belong to Him. It's a good reminder. Let's pray. Lord our God, you are the creator and governor of the world, and we are humbled to be called sons and daughters of the king. Thankful to have been enemies and made friends by the blood of the cross. So Lord, help us this day and this week to meditate on the power and the beauty and the majesty and mercy of our Lord Jesus, and to be so overwhelmed by your grace that we not only worship you and humble adoration, but that we would grow in righteousness for his sake, that we would become, by the power of your Spirit, more like him, that we would be of more use in the advancement of your kingdom, and that truly all nations would be blessed and those he calls his own. And God, we ask this expectantly. We ask it with confidence, because you have made your intentions known to us in your word, and you accomplish all your holy will. So, Lord, we pray you make it so. In Jesus' name, amen.